Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the music of dead musicians. But first, happy Halloween. For the most wild yet most homely narrative, which I'm about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet, mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. Our different drummer this week is Edgar Allan Poe. Beyond any doubt, when I think of Halloween time, my favorite artist, my favorite author, my favorite everything, really, is Edgar Allan Poe. I recall reading his short stories in a short story anthology that was in the library of my elementary school in sixth grade. And to be honest with you, for every word that I poured over, I probably only understood a fourth of them, if even that many. There was just something about the way he put phrases together, which was both gothic and yet more modern than that at the same time. And I really enjoyed the kind of material that he chose to, uh, to, to deal with, especially when you think about it from the perspective of Halloween time. And yet, when we look back on the work of Poe from this distance, we perhaps have given him more credit than he deserves. I say this in an offhand way because I don't think that he's gotten anywhere near the credit that he deserves. But what I mean by that is that when we think of him as being uh, somebody who dealt with with occult topics or with the darkness of man, um, we imbue perhaps too much supernatural elements into what it was he accomplished when by and large his works were nowhere near as supernatural as some people may remember them to be. This is especially true if our... uh, understanding of Poe comes more from Roger Corman and Vincent Price than from the actual written text. Poe perhaps deserves as much credit as anyone, um, and you hear him referred to often as being the father of the modern detective story. His storytelling is pretty straightforward, sometimes third person, but often, uh, and certainly my favorite examples, are in the first person. And even in cases where he's dealing with people who've committed horrible crimes of murder or who are absolutely losing their sanity, he is not necessarily dealing with ghosts and, ghosts and goblins and witches. Often enough, what he's dealing with is the psychological aspects of terror where the mind of someone with, an ingu- with a guilty conscience um, takes over. The uh, best, perhaps most famous examples in his stories of this would be the Telltale Heart. But the example I like best is the one that I quoted just before this segment, the very introduction to his short story, The Black Cat. It is absolutely my favorite introduction to any short story I've read, and it's among my favorite introductions to any piece of prose that I've read. And through it, he tells a story about his love-hate relationship with animals and with the titular Black Cat, which again has a role to play as the story unfolds which, depending on how you read it, and the most obvious way of reading it, is not particularly supernatural at all. Um, He's not quite the master of the twist ending. He doesn't have 
uh, a real coup de theater inside his work in the same way that you might find from an author like H.P. Lovecraft, also a very enjoyable author for the Halloween time of year. And yet, as his stories unfold, they unfold with a great deal of gravity, at least for me. You're, you're caught in the suspense of the detective drama at the end of the Telltale Heart to such an extent that even if there were no supernatural element at all, even if you weren't in the back of your mind wondering whether that really is an eye peering at him or a heartbeat from underneath the floorboards, you're still thinking about the, uh, you know, the whole drama of will this man get caught? Will he confess? Is there a corpse waiting to come back to life and point a, a decaying finger at him? These are the kind of things that you don't necessarily know. When you think about the landscape of Poe stories, you have the pit and the pendulum, dealing with nothing less than the Spanish Inquisition itself and the kind of terror that uh, comes from that situation. But also one of the strangest um, love-lorn, love-lost poems ever written in The Raven and similarly in Annabelle Lee. This was a romantic figure and a romantic character. And even when his characters were doing evil deeds or, or exacting some sort of revenge, as in perhaps the, uh, the cask of Amontillado, or in a sort of a strange way, the mask of the Red Death, um, he usually is doing so with characters that, for all their flaws, we can, in, we can engage in a relationship with. It's a far cry from what you see today in terms of the slasher sort of drama, where a movie series like Saw has much more in common with previous movie series like Friday the 13th, in that there is no real reason for us to be invested in the villain of the story, um, and we're stuck instead either developing or avoiding a relationship with people whose primary role is nothing more than victim. Whether villain or victim, Edgar Allan Poe took time to draw a very loving portrait of characters, uh, even characters that we would, uh, we would come to regret knowing, perhaps. The first rock and roll album that I can ever remember buying, the first piece of music that uh, came out of popular culture that was mine, was the Alan Parsons Project. At the time, I did not realize that their album, Tales of Mystery and Imagination by Edgar Allan Poe, was actually a debut. I didn't know Alan Parsons by name. I would only later learn that he had a role to play as a recording engineer on seminal recordings like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon or The Beatles' Abbey Road. That would come to me later. But instead, I picked up the album more because of Edgar Allan Poe uh, and the fact that all of the songs were based uh, or inspired by Poe's stories. That strengthened my relationship with Edgar Allan Poe and, and developed for me a relationship with the Alan Parsons Project that would t carry me onward, not just to their next album, which was uh, taking the inspiration of Poe and trading it in for the inspiration of Asimov in iRobot, but would literally last for more than a decade. And uh, again, Edgar Allan Poe being the common denominator there. Maybe I have more patience, uh, even as a film lover and a lover of very serious, very arthouse-type films. Maybe I have more patience for the Roger Cormans of the world because of the way Corman worked with material either of Poe or inspired by Poe. I'm not sure. I've always really admired the experiments in film that have been inspired by the works of Poe. And uh, the first filming, or the earliest filming I've ever seen, of The Fall of the House of Usher, and as I've already cited, Luis Manuel is a different drummer, Seems like the appropriate time to shout out to Benuel one more time as one of the assistant directors on that particular silent film project. Poe's work seems to work, translating to cinema, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, but in all eras. Uh, television films, black and white oldies, silent films, the beginning of talkies, modern color, but perhaps none more endearing to me than the Roger Corman-type experiments where he would show up on the set of a movie like The Lion in Winter and say, hey, 
before you tear down these sets, give me a couple of days. I'm going to shoot in less than a week what it takes some filmmakers a whole month to do, and I'm going to do it with the decaying, torn down, dismantled sets of another film to shoot something like Ligia. So Edgar Allan Poe has inspired some of the more interesting, although not necessarily best works in film. He was a driving force behind the organization of the Alan Parsons Project, which, for my money, put together some of the better, quote-unquote, uh, art rock of the 70s and 80s. But more than that, if I sit down to read a short story, or in this era, sit down to listen to a short story on, on a drive or a commute somewhere, the short story author I'm more likely to pick, more often than not, is Edgar Allan Poe. And you'll find people, sometimes in Christian circles, who raise an eyebrow to that. You know, they'll be a little bit concerned about someone reading stories like The Premature Burial or The Man That Was Used Up or, you know, knowing by heart the, uh, the words to poems like Alone uh, or Dream Within a Dream. But again, I don't find Poe to be an evil or a cult figure. I find him to be somebody who finds, finds the strangeness and perhaps the horror and things that we might otherwise consider to be a normal everyday life. When you line his stories up against the stories that we would define as proper horror with a capital H these days, Poe comes out uh, as much as a police procedural author in some moments as anything else. And yet, when you mention his name in context with Halloween, no one would ever dream of saying, you've got him out of place. Our different drummer, Edgar Allan Poe. Of course, the title to today's inappropriate conversation is The Music of Dead Musicians. You see, for me, Halloween is more or less a rock and roll holiday. When I was a kid, Halloween time was all about dressing up in costume and collecting as much candy as possible. It goes without saying, right? At least in America, Halloween is still about um, donning a disguise Putting on a costume doesn't have to be macabre, could be something from popular culture. I'm likely this weekend when the trick-or-treaters show up to see as many uh, Hello Kitty or Toy Story characters as I am zombies, more or less, at least among the young kids. By the time I hit legal drinking age, and back then legal drinking age was 18 years old, I was a college student at perhaps the exact right moment in history, I had switched to parties, and those parties celebrated for me, anyway, those parties celebrated the music of dead musicians. I was very unlikely, as somebody who had already found uh, the you know the woman that I later married. I, I didn't need to be going to parties trying to find check out the slutty nurses and the slutty nuns and the slutty whatever, and try to hook up in that manner. I never actually had any need for any, any such occasion as that. Halloween was not me dressing up in a manner to try to call attention to myself or or uh, seek somebody to hook up with. For me, Halloween was an occasion to get together with friends. And by and large, the friends that I got together with were not all that interested in that same sort of, of party scene or party atmosphere. They either um, were already dating or were just you know, a, a touch too serious for that, for that kind of thing. We were quite the clan. If I was going to recast this group today, and I won't recast my wife because it makes her mad. I know exactly who I would recast her as, but it makes her mad. But if I was, if I was to recast this group, one of us really had all the good qualities of the actor Jim Parsons with, I would say, none of the bad qualities of the character he plays on The Big Bang Theory, Sheldon. So very intelligent, very well-spoken, um, 
you know, and with certain physical characteristics that I wouldn't call quirky, but were easily identifiable. Um, another one of our friends would probably best be played by a young Jack Lemmon. If you think of uh, the roles that Jack Lemmon played late 50s, early 60s, Jack Lemmon in the apartment, for example, that was kind of, you know, that was what, what his kind of role was. And the other uh, guy, a really a great friend of mine, one of the people who was one of my uh, best, my groomsmen at my wedding, I think I might be tempted to cast as a young and happy Morrissey. It's not exactly right. It's not dead on accurate, but in lots of ways, it would be the perfect, the perfect role. So you had this cast of characters with, with me, usually gathering at my place in my apartment because we had a great stereo and I had roommates who just only augmented my, my record collection with more cool stuff. And we would get together, uh, put on some candles, um, maybe even burn a little incense or what have you, and uh, just kind of rock out primarily to the kind of music you'd expect to hear on Halloween. Things ranging from the song Halloween by the Dead Kennedys to the theme from Jaws, you know, all that sort of stuff. But all the way over to uh, at least one segment during the evening, and usually more than that, recognizing the music of dead musicians. Now, obviously, in, in rock and roll culture, that can take you all the way back. You could find a time every year in that context to, you know, play a track of songs by Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin, the music of dead musicians from a rock and roll perspective has historic moments. But we would also try to find the time every year to try to recognize the music of the very recently dead. And really, one of my favorite moments every year at the Oscars, and maybe it's a little bit morbid, but then Halloween is probably the time to feel a little bit morbid. But every year in the springtime at the Oscars, one of my favorite moments is the time where Hollywood literally stops and pays tribute to those actors and actresses who have passed on in the year before. And really, for me, it's not even the actors and the actresses. I'm more interested, in fact, in the great uh, directors and producers and film editors. But that in-memoriam moment. And we would try to do the same thing at Halloween for the music of dead musicians. It seemed like the perfect opportunity to showcase, regardless of the size of the party, maybe this handful of people, or maybe a much bigger crowd. You know, Cheryl's roommate would sometimes be around for these sorts of things. My roommates, too. Um, songs for the darker side of storytelling. But let me kind of walk, walk you through what I would do this year if I was trying to recognize the music of dead musicians in some sort of a Halloween-style celebration this year. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not. But it's, it's fun to think about it, or at least it gives me a reminiscence to think about it. So um, when you think about those who have passed away, a lot of these artists are ones that I don't have on heavy rotation in my playlist. But again, if you only played them once, if you only stopped to think of them once, um, an occasion like this might serve pretty well. I'm just going to cover a quick dozen. Solomon Burke. Um, and the song from him that I think of the most is Cry to Me. And the version of that song that I actually have on my player is the Tom Petty remake from the No Nukes concert. But it's still the Solomon Burke original for the song Cry to Me. Eddie Fisher. Now, again, am I, it's not a rock and roll party if you're going all the way back to the 40s and 50s and dredging up people like Eddie Fisher. But the man did pass away this year, and I probably do have a copy somewhere on vinyl of the song Lady of Spain. Buddy Collette is a jazz musician, and, and probably the best thing that I would know from him would be the theme song to the Groucho Marx TV show uh, You Bet Your Life. Michael Bean of The Call. Yeah, this, this year's Halloween would definitely have to include The Call. And for me, probably uh, the most important track would be The Walls Came Down. Um, for me, a great moment by that group. Richie Hayward of Little Feet. I'm not sure which musical instrument he played. Little Feet 
outside of Lowell George is not a group that I'm that familiar with the sometimes ever-changing cast of characters. But from Little Feet, I really do love the song uh, Down on the Farm. And although that particular track doesn't have any sort of dark undercurrent to it, like the walls came down, it would still be the song that I would pick to memorialize the passing of Richie Hayward. Harvey Fuqua, The Moon Glows. Um, you know, that sort of early soft doo-wop style, uh, sincerely, is the, is the track that I think I'd probably recommend there. And Marvin Isley of the Isley Brothers. Now, again, <clears throat> there's not a lot scary Halloween about It's Your Thing. But if you're going to remember the Isley Brothers, I always, in the back of my head, hear, hear that particular track. Ronnie James Dio. Any party rec- representing the music of dead musicians in the context of celebrating Halloween this particular year, well, you'd have to spend some time with Ronnie James Dio, wouldn't you? I'm a Black Sabbath fan. Um, more to the Aussie side of the fence than later. But from Ronnie James Dio, I, I might be looking at the title track to The Mob Rules or the title track to Heaven and Hell. My favorite from him with Black Sabbath was a love song or a end of the occasion love song called Walk Away or Avoiding a Bad Relationship Song. But really, I think when you're dealing with Dio, I'm not a big fan of, of the band Dio. I wouldn't be moving in that direction. But I would definitely go back to Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. On the occasion of this strange, enigmatic man's death, it might be appropriate to actually spend some time with a long, live extended version of Still I'm Sad or The Man on the Silver Mountain. Ronnie James Dio. Others that have passed this year that would deserve some memorial. Lena Horne. song I'd play would be Stormy Weather. Johnny Maestro of the Crests, where the obvious track to pick would be 16 Candles. Katie McGarrigal. Lots to pick from with McGarrigal's. Heart Like a Wheel jumps immediately to mind. And with the passing of Malcolm McLaren, it probably almost doesn't make sense to consider him a dead musician, but there's no mistaking the role he played in the career of the Sex Pistols, and it would be ironic to, to honor him in some ways with the song No Future. God Save the Queen, perhaps a touch too obvious. Masters of None. Log on to mastersofnoneshow.com. Our DJ name's real. 95% of them are completely fake. There's someone named Rusty Fender, traffic person. Ew. I'm Rusty Fender giving you the traffic. I really hope that that guy gets in a bus accident. Yeah. This would be ironic death. Now your name is Bloody Fender. <laughs> and you're causing the traffic. <laughs> okay, then you got people who just steal famous names like George McFly, Jack Daniels, Maverick, and Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, I made the last one up. I made the last one up. It was just like an 18-year-old intern. Hi, everyone. I'm Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? Anything with nice? You need those like those short-sounding names with that one, too. Chuck Nice. Jack Nice. Benjamin Nice really doesn't work. NPR try to get edgy by trying to get some cool radio names going on. I'm Bartholomew Nice. <laughs> Bartholomew. Nice to be here on NPR. <laughs> I will cite Wild Bill Shakespeare is an actual (laughs) radio name. That was actually a before and after puzzle on Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Masters of None. Email mastersofnone at simplysyndicated.com. On Twitter, Masters of None. And on Facebook, Masters of None. Of course, you couldn't sustain too long with paying tribute to the music of dead musicians, especially if a lot of them ended up with relatively happy songs like, you know, 16 Candles or whatnot. At some point, the evening's going to morph into the Monster Mash and the Napoleon song, uh, They're Coming to Take Me Away, Ha Ha, He He, things of that nature. But before long, the novelty is ultimately going to give way and Halloween ends up 
being more about heavy metal than anything else. It's a rock and roll evening. We would instead ultimately venture into things like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. Uh, with apologies to any of my friends from England, we really weren't into Iron Maiden at the time. But, you know, with fair amounts of dosages of people like uh, Uriah Heep and uh, some songs from Led Zeppelin, you could certainly spin a pretty dark Halloween tale that way. To give you a sense of what we might have picked, Alice Cooper's Go to Hell comes to mind. But to give you a sense of what we might pick, instead I think I'm going to take a venture uh, anachronistically into my current playlist and sort of look at you know what's in my Halloween playlist today and see kind of what sort of things we might be doing if we had a tribute to the music of dead musicians right now, just to get a sense of it. And as would have been true at the time, Black Sabbath would feature pretty prominently uh, songs like The Wizard or Supernaut uh, or even... The instrumentals, not fluff, it's too positive, more like Solitude from the Masters of Reality CD. Blue Easter Cult featured then, as they would now, and perhaps my favorite at the time was the live album, Some Enchanted Evening, that gives you tracks that you'd want to have, like Don't Fear the Reaper, and Astronomy, and Godzilla. But perhaps my favorite uh, Blue Easter Cult song uh, would be Flaming Telepaths. Other tracks that I would look to today if I was putting together such a playlist, um, well, first, I've got a sense of humor, so I'd want the Cardigans versions of Black Sabbath songs like Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and Iron Man, but I also have uh, have enough of a dark side to me. I've mentioned Dan- Danzig before for the song Godless. The title track of that album, How the Gods Kill, is a very nice Halloween collection, and I've recently added something brand new. Sounds a little bit like the music of Skinny Puppy, but uh, stripped down of a lot of its industrial roughness, uh, cleaned up for a more um, modern electronic audience, a group called Dead When I Found Her. They've got that mixture of, of clean beats in the background with movie clips and other sort of dialogue going on in the foreground. And the song I first heard from them is Curtains. And I knew instantly when I heard it that this was going to be the perfect sort of song for Halloween. But when I mentioned metal, you end up with other bands that I think have a pretty good footprint in the realm of metal. Groups like uh, Carcass. Almost anything they've ever recorded is is right on target for a Halloween type of audience. If I was to put Iron Maiden in the playlist, you know, where I stand right now, I think Can I Play With Madness is the direction that I might be tempted to go in uh, as far as that goes. And you really can't do Halloween right, I wouldn't think, without inclusions from Metallica and Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, for example, things of that nature. But I also like my music experimental, and I'd probably be thinking in terms of what can I put in there with sort of that eerie sound that would represent sort of the music of, of groups like The Residents. I definitely would look toward um, Fetus, uh, because Fetus is another one of those bands with perhaps tongue firmly in cheek, definitely knows how to celebrate Halloween. Um, Diabolus and Musica is, is their uh, Devil Made Me Do It sort of song, uh, playing with the kind of musical instrumentation that was viewed in the Middle Ages as being evil or conjuring in some way. And they also have tracks like Behemoth and Sick Minutes, which certainly give you a sense of the sort of foreboding that you'd want. But again, it was all about mixing the music. A friend of mine the other day mentioned online that he'd much rather put together a playlist, kind of like the one I'm looking at in front of me right now, for a Halloween celebration, to put together a playlist as opposed to doing something a little bit more um, elementary, like grabbing a stack of albums and grabbing some CDs and just sitting in front of a stereo stack system and, and playing songs. But to be honest with you, that's where a lot of the fun comes from. Because sometimes when you're actually putting songs together, you think of things that would be perhaps appropriate in ways you wouldn't necessarily think of right off. Things like the song The, the Gypsy by uh, The Ink Spots, 
back-to-back with the song Gypsy from Black Sabbath off their Technical Ecstasy album. Interesting, you know, play of a combination there. And obviously it's hard not to think of uh, tracks like People Who Died from the Jim Carroll Band if one of the themes of the evening is the music of dead musicians to begin with. We always look toward things like... um, King Crimson, uh, 21st century schizoid man, the Court of the Crimson King. In fact, that whole Court of the Crimson King album has a lot of good stuff that can really be leveraged to a fun turn. But also, um, the song that I like among country music best, probably, for uh, Halloween, is a bluegrass number from uh, Mark O'Connor and the New Nashville Cats. I think I might have mentioned that particular CD before at one point in time. It's got a spooky ghost story in it, uh, set to a square dance beat, but it's still a ghost story nevertheless called The Ballad of Sally Ann. And if I'm not mistaken, when I hear the song, I hear in there an an interracial romance with a wedding that was interrupted by a lynching and... um, and the aftermath of that, you know, sort of being this this ghost story that comes from it. So a very sad story, but also definitely a very spooky Halloween-type story as well. I remember one night in particular, we had a uh, candle that was in the shape of a skull. So the kind of thing you'd pick up at a novelty store for Halloween. We'd been burning the candle, playing the music of dead musicians, bringing in some of the heavy metal, and, and having ourselves a hard rock Halloween celebration. And over the course of time, for whatever reason, we decided that it would be a good idea to to get some cloves from the cupboard and burn cloves in the candle, creating more smoke than normal and a very you know distinctly smelling sort of smoke. If you've ever been in the presence of somebody smoking cloves cigarettes, you kind of get a sense of what that might be like. And at the what we were considering to be pretty much the end of the party, we'd shifted gears away from the rock and roll and over toward Gregorian chant. So we've got this candle that is melted in such a way that it looks like the skull, uh, the cranium of this particular skull candle has just been cracked wide open. And there's a mixture of of sort of the browns and reddish hues of, of burnt clove in there in the molten wax, smoke everywhere. And uh, the album that we put on was an album of Gregorian chant. Now, don't call me a reverend if you want to, but to me, no matter how faithful the words may be, no matter how sincere the singers are, you basically got a a bunch of monks singing a chant-like tone in Latin, and on a Halloween night at the end of the party, that's pretty darn spooky. So at that moment in time, when all of us pretty relaxed, some of us almost asleep, because if nothing else, Gregorian chant is pretty soothing stuff, in comes my roommates with dates. No one got lucky that night. (laughs) Not a happy scene because I think they were probably expecting us to be in the rock and roll stage of our particular party, but we're out of beer and we got the Greg, the Gregorian chant playing smoke filled room. And, uh, in comes a couple of people that we'd actually never met before. And, uh, yeah, it was sort of that clash of cultures where for some people, Halloween is, is either the children's version of trick or treat or the adult version of trick or treat, but we always took it in a different direction. And I want to take this in a different direction now by asking a question. Is there anything wrong with that? If you take a look at it from a religious perspective, from a Christian perspective, is there anything wrong with this particular celebration of Halloween? No drugs being used, no laws being broken, um, no one doing any sort of bizarre you know, ritual or anything. Simply a bunch of friends getting together, kicking back, listening to music. Is the real issue what kind of music? I don't think so. Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but you know, we try our best. 
Finally, with the occasion being Halloween, it might make sense to discuss a little bit a concept that I don't want to do justice to at this particular occasion, but it might be appropriate to talk a little bit about evil. So what I want to do is when I ask anybody who is you know not a Christian or puts no stock in, in the ancient parts of Christian ideas, to just sort of grant me a little bit of leeway here. I want to speak specifically to a Christian audience. I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to offend you, but I'm not asking you to assume that you believe the same things that I believe as I venture into this territory. I want to talk about evil, and I'll do so by referring specifically to the devil. And the challenge that I want to pose to Christians at this, specifically at this moment of Halloween is, aren't we sick and tired of doing the devil's bidding? And here's what I mean by that. If you take something that could be as simple as pantomime, children dressing up in disguise, putting on a costume, uh, playing a part, doing, the, doing an actor's role, and turn that into, invest in that some notion that to participate in any way of that is somehow evil, that it's somehow blasphemous, that it's somehow anti-God or anti-Christ, to make that kind of assumption, you are taking something which is not in and of itself the devil's bidding, and turning it into the devil's bidding by meeting him more than halfway and taking him across the finish line. I do not think that there is any wisdom in taking something that might otherwise be innocent but could be misconstrued and doing the job of the Spanish Inquisition used to do by pouring all sorts of superstition around it or assumptions of evil intent around it and choosing to punish people. I do not believe that I will ever understand a Christian church, capital C church in the world today, especially in America today, who understands that Jesus has said that we are supposed to go out into the world and make disciples of people, telling them what Jesus taught, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and instead of taking advantage of one of the biggest opportunities of the year, perhaps the second biggest retail holiday outside of Christmas itself, and we'll get around later to talking about whether Christmas as a retail holiday makes sense. But one of the biggest, most celebrated holidays, the entire neighborhood is coming to your door and bringing their children with them. And instead of presenting them with the love of Christ, if only through a smile and through pleasant conversation, choosing instead to shut out your light, to shut your door, to refuse to engage in any sort of neighborly conversation, much less you know, a, any sort of Christian love, kindness, and charity, doesn't make any sense to me. I'm trying to reconcile the idea that we are supposed to be loving toward others, that we're supposed to open our hearts to others, that we're supposed to open our doors to others, with this notion that some sort of Middle Ages superstition we have is more important. The devil likes to take things that the Bible would have us do and twist them. You know, we have this notion that Antichrist is some sort of a person and a person who's coming in the future if he's not the current president of the United States because you know, it seems to me that if you're of one political persuasion, you automatically think that the president is the Antichrist. And if you're of another political persuasion, then he's absolutely not. But the guy before him might have been or the next guy is going to be. The Antichrist was not a person, even from the perspective of biblical prophecy. It was a point of view. It was a worldview. And the beast, which we don't seem to view in certain evangelical Christian circles as a person, we see it as some sort of, you know, mythological sort of, you know, some sort of a future monster of some sort, actually was a person. And we don't read the Bible 
accurately enough and well enough to comprehend and understand that. Now, I'm not saying that the beast came and went, you know, 1900 years ago, and the world has been safe ever since. We've seen ripple effects of that particular kind of person ever since, that that was an example, maybe, maybe not the example, maybe the example, but we've seen all kinds of instances of it since. Uh, and, you know, from, from my perspective, from a biblical worldview, Hitler was less uh, an example of Antichrist and more an example of beast. Because Antichrist can be anything or anyone who stands in opposition to Christ. So here's my thought. And it's a thought that might not be welcome, but I'm going to share it anyway. If you're not opening your doors to the neighborhood kids who are dressed up like characters from the Toy Story movies, or you know, for that matter, Dracula or zombies, and presenting them with a loving smile and with the best candy that you can afford to give out, then you're doing the work of Antichrist. Now, I'm not saying that Halloween is the ideal Christian celebration, but if you take something and make it evil, whose work are you doing? Jesus Christ's or Satan himself? Whose bidding do you want to be a part of? And that really is the question. We were gathered together as a group of eighth grade kids in youth group. And at that point in time, somewhere in town, and we were, and we were in a big city, somewhere in town, uh, a big program was put together where a whole bunch of youth were invited. So people from many denominations were there. And we were a guest in this church of a different denomination. And the entire youth group program that particular Sunday evening was one long 45 minute, maybe even an hour long rant about rock and roll being the devil's music. You know what? That day for a lot of kids, rock and roll became the devil's music when before it wasn't, you know, for me, it wasn't before and it wasn't after because the world that we live in is a fallen world and the world that we live in has a whole lot of evil to it. But the question is what you do with what it is you've been given. And for every student in that class, eighth, ninth, 10th graders who bought the line that rock and roll was the devil's music and decided to walk away from the church as a result, Satan smiles and Satan smiles because an otherwise very conservative, evangelical, active church, politically active church, had done him the greatest favor that can possibly be done by taking something that wasn't necessarily evil and pouring all of the evil that we imagine he is into it and then delivering that into the hands of people who might not have had a sufficient degree of world experience to resist it. So... You know, when you're talking about the music of dead musicians, when you're talking about heavy metal, rock and roll, songs like Black Sabbath, the title track of Black Sabbath's song, where the character in the song Black Sabbath encounters some sort of demonic being, Satan himself, and uh, realizes that he's made a terrible mistake and he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Was that an evil song? Or did Black Sabbath actually, perhaps unwittingly, spend a lot of time writing songs that say, evil is bad, the occult is dangerous, don't go there. You know what? The message that I needed to hear from that came to me from the bands that this particular youth group in this other church was trying to tell me to not pay attention to. Because at the time, the message that was being taught instead was probably a message of hate. Again, unlike the church that I went to, that even when I was in elementary school, was teaching things along the lines of saying, hey, we're not really 100% sure we understand what homosexuality is. But it is not evil to be homosexual. 
This church on the other side of town was teaching the exact opposite thing, was teaching ideas like homosexuality is evil and drug use is evil. It was never a question of good decisions, bad decisions, wherever decision might actually come into play. It was pouring evil into those ideas. And you know what? When you do that, you leave people with a decision to say, hey, you know what? I have reason to disagree with this. I have reason to think that there is some redeeming value in the music of Black Sabbath in a song like After Forever, if nothing else, from the, the Masters of Reality album. What do you do when you're holding up After Forever on one hand and saying, well, this is what Black Sabbath has to say, and then looking at some incredibly hate-filled speech coming out of this one church? Well, again, I thank God every day that I went to a completely different church in a different denomination that didn't put hate first in the way that it dealt with people. But there's nothing more ironic than leaving that Yes concert that I mentioned long time ago. I've been in the show about, about drugs and just say no. Leaving that Yes concert, still a little bit worried about my friend who had, you know, made a mistake, uh, used drugs, not, not been very smart about it, and missed the entire show. But on the way out, having what we called the Jesus Freaks. One of the Jesus Freaks on the sidewalk, handing out pamphlets, Bible tracts, for want of a better word. Except in this case, instead of being that slick, glossy color trifold sort of tract, it was literally uh, you know, a, a piece of mimeograph paper. And on the pamphlet, I, I looked down and noticed these were the lyrics to the Tony Iommi written song, After Forever. Have you ever thought about your soul? Can it be saved? Or perhaps you think that when you're dead, you'll just stay in your grave. Is God a thought within your head, or is he part of you? Is Christ just a name you read in the books when you were in school? These lyrics, and I looked down and I saw that, and I realized that there was no, there's no attribution, that it was written as if it was a poem that came from anonymous of some sort. Um, and I wasn't looking for some sort of a copyright notation or a, or a lyric number, but at the very least, crediting Tony Iommi as the man who wrote those words seemed like a good idea. So I went back to the guy who was a Jesus freak, and I, I told him, I was honest with him, wasn't trying to trick him, told him right up front, hey, I'm a Christian, I came out of this concert watching Yes perform, and I took your piece of paper, do you remember me? And he did. And I said, do you know who wrote the lyrics to this particular quote-unquote poem? And he said that he did, which encouraged me, because I was, I was afraid he actually might tell me that he had no idea, but he did. And I said, why aren't you giving proper attribution to the author of this work? And he said, because the person who wrote it's part of Black Sabbath and they're an evil band. And I, I don't know what my exact response to him was. I'm sure it wasn't very erudite, you know, but I'm sure that the, the gist of it was, you know what, buddy, evil is as evil does. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to steal. We're supposed to have a holy living spirit inside us that it can act as as a, count, a conscience with a capital C that somewhere along the way would stop you from passing off somebody else's ideas as your own and for calling someone evil when you're passing off his words as good. He didn't have an answer to me then, and I'm sure he doesn't even to this day have an answer to me now. Because what are you going to say when your first priority is to pour evil intentions into everyone that you disagree with? You're doing the devil's bidding. Now, I have nothing against Jesus freaks. In fact, you know, if somebody were to, to try to tar me with that epithet, it wouldn't bother me one bit because I do love Christ. I love Christ enough, though, that I love him enough not to lie for him, which is an almost nonsensical statement, because the line between lying for him and lying about him 
is a distinction that truthfully only the devil cares about. And when we do these sorts of things, we do his will, we do his bidding, and we make him smile. So when you look at it Halloween this year and decide whether or not you're willing to give candy bars to kids who dress up like ghosts, ask yourself whether or not you're supposed to reach out to the world, share your faith, set an example that maybe they will remember you as somebody whose opinion matters to them. Maybe when you're ready to talk to that person years later when they've grown up and share your faith in Christ, you won't be the angry curmudgeon down the road who accused them of being some sort of an occult, you know, cult member when they weren't. Maybe they'll remember you as somebody who loved the Lord enough to put your superstitions aside. Hopefully that's the kind of happy Halloween that you'll have. I wish that for you. And if nothing else, it's an excellent occasion to stop. Look back on those people that God has blessed us with to share their art, to share their music, to share their pantomime and their performance, and remember those who have gone before. If you have a different opinion, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. That's my email address. And the Podbean website is inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.